Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the homebrew edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, soon to be fleeing the ice house that is Washington, D.C., heading for the sunny uh, beachside at Santa Barbara. Is Santa Barbara a beach? It is. It is a beach. What are you, what are you doing I'm in Santa giving, Barbara? I'm giving a speech at the CAPS Center next week in Santa Barbara on uh, my book, on At War, on Cyber Warfare. Um, I'm going to talk about whatever they want me to talk about because I get to go to California next week. I would just like to point out that there was hail in California this week. So That's true. Don't assume that you're escaping the it ice. It probably will follow me there, yes. Uh, I am joined, as always, by my good friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, who you just heard, prodigal daughter, just returned back to us from the region, as we say. Welcome back, Tamara. Thank you. Did you have a fun trip? I managed to escape the uh, snow and landed in a lot of stormy rain. Yeah, you left you left at just the right time. Mm-hmm. And, le- and it landed in a, a political storm as well, brewing in Israel as the election is coming and a maelstrom yes, a of maelstrom. domestic politics. Was it was it could you feel it in the air? I mean is it just like what was the like quickly like the feeling on the ground as the election is approaching and Netanyahu is preparing to come give his speech and all of that? Yes. Uh, I think in many ways it's up for grabs, although the numbers still favor Netanyahu returning as prime minister. I think there is is a chance that uh, Isaac Herzog and the Labor Party could pull it out. Yeah. Um, Netanyahu did have my favorite campaign out of all time, though, with the babysitter. Oh, the babysitter was great. The babysitter ad. If our listeners have not seen the babysitter ad, just go watch it right now. I, I didn't know that he had this level of sense of humor. I don't know that he does, but yeah. his campaign staff have done some very, very funny and outrageous ads. It was a great ad, and I wish some of that humor were in his speech before Congress. Well, this is, week. Israeli television campaign ads in general are uh, things of beauty. And yeah? Kind of, yeah, well, there, there, there's a rule, at least there used to be, I don't know if it still works this way, that the, there's a, a special set time devoted to advertising and all ads are run in that period of time, and the time is allocated to the different parties, and people really spend time watching these ads. It's not like American television ads. Um, So the the parties spend a lot of uh, energy on on their television advertising, and it's kind of something you do every day as you watch the ads. Yeah, although the the fun thing for you two guys who care about technology and its effect on politics YouTube has blown that whole system out of the water. And so there are things that would never pass the uh, electoral regulations uh, to end up in a television ad, but all of the parties are doing YouTube ads that they're releasing constantly, and it, and it also evades the time limits. So the so like Center ad was movies. online. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, also joined, of course, as always, by my good friend who you just heard, uh, informing us about the, the magic of Israeli campaign ads, Ben Wittes, noted TSA scoff law. Yeah, so last week you told me I could not get my 
quarter staff into Congress. And uh, just to prove you wrong, not only did I bring <laughs> it to the House Armed Services Committee, I then took it on two flights. Two? Yes. Oh, okay, so you did have to go. Uh, well, I had to go. I had to go to North Carolina and come back. Uh, and this, of course, uh, did it fit under the seat in front of you or in the overhead bin? It uh, oh, did not question. fit under the seat in front of me by a long shot. It did <laughs> fit in the overhead bin. Um, but uh, so here's the question, uh, guys: When you bring a quarter staff through airport security, what does the TSA guy say to you? Nice quarter staff, sir. No, he does not. That's what. That's a different story. Nice bow or Joe. No, nope. he just uh, looks at it and says, "You got to run that through the machine." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, so, did they find the concealed flask? Th they did not right. find the concealed flask. <laughs> grams of coke. Um, right. They <laughs> did want to go through my bag. Um, I thought it would be kind of ironic if they seized three milliliters of of, of liquid. Um, but, but no, not this no, it was stick. actually it was that, but not this giant stick. But no. They were concerned about the recording device on which I am. We are now recording rational oh. security. That <laughs> they wanted to inspect that, so they took a biological sample oh. from that. And the quarter Naturally. staff was uninteresting. Of course. Well, that was, that was probably all things considered. That was probably the smarter move. <laughs> the recording is more dangerous to them than the staff is. Yeah, we know that TSA is focusing on the right things. The Rational Security Podcast is the true threat. To That's true threat. Watch out, TSA. Uh, all right, so this week on the show, Iran, Guantanamo, and the mysterious case of Eric Hotham, or Hotham. We'll get to that. Um, National Security Advisor Susan Rice made a speech about APAC. Uh, or, sorry, no, to APAC. To APAC. APAC. To APAC about Iran making the case for the administration's negotiations with that country over its nuclear program. Tamara, this is your wordplay this week, so why don't you fill us in? Sure. Well, you have all likely heard a great deal about um, at least one famous speech on Iran given this week by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, but I actually wanted to focus on the administration's preemptive strike ahead of Netanyahu's speech. They sent, boldly, I would say, National Security Advisor Susan Rice to be their lead speaker at the annual APAC Policy Conference, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, the main pro-Israel lobby. And, uh, and she laid out in this speech, it's very, very meaty, and I commend it to you. She laid out in greater detail than I think we've seen anywhere before the administration's approach to the negotiations with Iran, what they're looking for in a deal. Not quite red lines, but certainly the core principles that they want to see in an acceptable deal. And also um, trying to address a little bit of the other anxieties that Israel and America's Arab partners have about negotiating with Iran and, and what the U.S.-Iranian rapprochement, if you want to call it that, might mean for them. So I thought it was worth bringing this in and, and sharing a little bit of it with you. Um, I think that there were several components to the administration's case. I don't think that Netanyahu really managed to confront any of these arguments directly. Uh, and I think it remains for, I, I think the burden remains on the opponents of a deal after this speech to, uh, to make a case that they have a better alternative. But basically, uh, the administration's argument is um, that they want to maintain uh, the sanctions um, 
as a tool to pressure that they want to use strategic patients. Time is on their side, and so they can kind of lay out their desired components, and then, you know, let's see whether Iran is flexible enough to say yes to what the P5 plus one want, or it, whether Iran will walk away from the table. That's the argument they've been making, and they've been saying um, to Congress, that's why we don't want you to pass new sanctions, because time is on our side, and we should let this play out. Um, I thought that uh, Susan Rice did a pretty good job of, of laying that argument out. And the requisites for the deal, uh, she said, are, you know, it has to prevent Iran from developing uh, weapons-grade plutonium at Iraq. So it has to cut off the plutonium channel to a bomb. It has to prevent Iran from enriching uranium at its nuclear facility at Fordo. This was a secret site that was discovered in 2009. So basically, no enrichment at Fordo. Um, it has to enable at least a one-year breakout timeline. In other words, to the extent that Iran is allowed to enrich anything, it has to be done in such a way and at such a level that it would take them at least a year to acquire sufficient material uh, and weaponize it to get to a bomb. Uh, and um, it also talked about two things that I think haven't been addressed much. One is the inspections regime, uh, a very, very robust, frequent, intrusive inspections regime. Um, and uh, that the U.S. also wants to address the military dimensions of Iran's nuclear program. And a lot of the critics of these negotiations have been saying, well, this isn't, the military dimension isn't on the table, and without that, this is a meaningless deal. And the administration came out and said, no, we have to address that too. Um, so I think that this was a pretty robust set of requisites. And the question is whether the administration has time left, frankly, to get this. Um, especially with Congress now moving forward, apparently, on the Corker legislation right. that would require congressional approval of any deal. There's, a, there's building pressure, I think, for the P5 plus one to get something done before a deal gets spoiled. And that cuts very much against the administration's strategy of putting Iran in the position of having to walk away from the table. So is Rice's speech directed at the Congress, or was it directed at Netanyahu, or both? Because, I mean, clearly Netanyahu is saying to Congress, don't take the deal. Well, you know, the funny thing is Netanyahu didn't say to Congress, Go, don't take the deal. What he said was, uh, I think we should be negotiating. I think we, and I think time is on our side. And if we let Iran uh, continue to feel the pressure of sanctions, we can get a better deal. Mm -hmm. So, ironically, after acting in a way um, by pushing for more sanctions that created urgency, to conclude the deal, he's now embracing the administration's strategy of strategic patience. Is and that, is that, not to cut you off, but is that because he, he realized that he wasn't going to prevail and he decided he had to come around to the administration's I don't know side? that it's a total 180. I do think that it reveals, number one, that his goal for this visit was not to spoil a deal, but to achieve some other political goals. Um, and number two, that he wanted to leave himself room to bridge gaps with the administration and eventually acquiesce in what they might come Wait, up with. Wait, I'm confused. As I read Netanyahu's speech, he denounced the deal in no uncertain terms, said it would not uh, block the road to uh, Iran getting a bomb, it would pave it. Um, I don't think you can read Netanyahu's speech 
as embracing the administration strategy. Uh, but what did he say that that should be done differently? He didn't say, quit negotiating, this is a waste of time. Uh, he didn't say, walk away from the table and pass new sanctions right now. In fact, he didn't call for additional sanctions, which is what he had been calling for even two months ago. What he said was, we have the upper hand. Let the pressure work and we can get a better deal. In other words, don't conclude this now. Um, keep the pressure on and you'll get something better down the road. And if the Iranians walk away, they'll come back. So I think he was embracing at the end of the day the administration's strategy. He certainly wasn't suggesting any alternative strategy. And he wasn't, and, and he had pulled back from some of his specific demands before, past new sanctions, and notably, zero enrichment. He didn't talk about a demand for zero enrichment in his speech to Congress at all. So do you think that, I guess we're sort of we're tallying up, did Susan Rice win or did Netanyahu win? Is it that Rice won and Netanyahu lost? Or should we not look at it as sort of the I think politically Netanyahu won. He made a very powerful emotional argument and ideological argument that Iran is a determined adversary. It can, you know, it it may be rational in the sense that it responds to pressure, but don't kid yourself that it's anything but an enemy, and therefore we should not trust it. The bar should be very high. And do you think that I mean, if we, do you think people in the National Security Council actually feel differently? I mean, there's, there's, like, I mean there's, there's a great sort of, I mean, I don't know if it's too long to call it a conspiracy, right? But there are those who believe that the Obama administration is actively out to empower the Islamic Republic of Iran. Yeah, I think that is it, a conspiracy theory, <laughs> And actually. does not see it as a threat. And that part of Netanyahu's speech here was to correct that and put us back on the track of reality. Right. Well, and I, I think that's why you heard some Democrats say that they found that part of Netanyahu's speech patronizing. But... This is another reason why Susan Rice's speech is worth paying attention to, because she, she preempted that as well. Um, and she said explicitly, you know, no matter what um, happens with the nuclear negotiations, we have to pay attention to all of Iran's behavior. We still face other threats. Iran's sponsorship of terrorism, its violation of human rights, its efforts to destabilize neighboring states, its support for Assad and Hamas and Hezbollah, its intolerable threats against Israel, our sanctions against Iran and these issues will remain in place. We will continue to counter Iran and the full range of threats it poses. So she explicitly rejected the idea that the nuclear deal opens the door to any um, broader detente. Okay. Uh, ben, moving to your wordplay, there's a new habeas motion in a Gitmo case that heralds the next round of Gitmo litigation. Yes, Equals so job security for you. Uh, guaranteeing uh, Gitmo is the gift that keeps on taking away. Um, so lawyers for a detainee uh, named Mukhtar al-Warafi uh, filed a little notice motion the other day that I think deserves not a lot of notice, but some. I love little uh, notice motions. Little notice motion. Uh, says, President Obama has made it clear in authoritative statements, including in his State of the Union address of January 20, 2015, that the United States' war in Afghanistan and its combat mission in Afghanistan ended at the close of 2014. 
There is thus no legal basis for al-Warathi's continued detention, and the court should forthwith grant his petition for habeas corpus. Now, the motion goes on to quote various statements from President Obama, uh, including, this month, after more than 13 years, our combat mission in Afghanistan will be over, unquote. And this month, America's war in Afghanistan will come to a responsible end, unquote. And in the State of the Union address, he stated uh, without qualification or condition that our combat mission in Afghanistan is over. So the laws of war authorize detention of enemy fighters until the end of hostilities. And the courts have traditionally deferred to the political branches concerning when those ends of hostilities have really been reached. And what this motion does is it's going to force the courts to confront the question of how seriously to take presidential statements about that question. Wow. And, you know, if the president is saying uh, the combat mission is over, the war is, we're bringing it, to, we've brought it to a responsible end, does that require the release of at least Taliban? It certainly doesn't with respect to al-Qaeda operatives. But what is the legal basis then for detaining Taliban uh, people? Now, there's a couple possible answers to this question. One is we actually still have 10,000 troops in Afghanistan, and uh, they're still in harm's way. Um, the other side kind of gets a vote about whether there's still ongoing hostilities. There's certainly ongoing hostilities in Afghanistan, right? And so you could argue that, and I'm sure the government will argue that, in fact, that's uh, the mission has changed, the combat mission has changed, but that doesn't mean that hostilities are over. So the government could effectively be undermining the president's own statements. Uh, and it'll be very interesting to see how the whether the government responds to this by saying the combat mission is over does not mean the hostilities right. are over. Despite <laughs> what our boss just said. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it actually raises the question of whether a speech is a statement of U.S. Right. policy. How right. seriously should we take it? Right, right. absolutely. Um, and then the second possibility is that there is this case from the uh, uh, post-World War II era where a German prisoner of war said, hey, the war is over, you got to let me go. And the Supreme Court said, no, nah, when the war is over is really uh, a political decision up to the political branches, and we uh, defer to the president on that. And but wasn't there, there a sorry, go ahead. Um, and so there's a... There's a, and that has been interpreted to mean there's some kind of wind-down period after combat operations end. You can kind of hold on to your detainees while you sort of wind things down. We had POWs for years after World War II, into, it, into the late 40s. Yeah. So if a, that was a declared war, Congress declared war. And I feel foolish for not knowing this. Did we declare the war? I mean, we signed a treaty, but didn't that... Um, so the, we, we yeah, signed a we signed does. a treaty with the Federal Republic of Germany in 1953 that officially ended the war. Not until 53. Correct. What about Japan? That was on the deck of the Missouri, I, though, right? Well, that was the surrender. Right. It's not the. I don't know when the peace treaty with 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 Japan happened. So the surrender can happen. The war can be, as a practical matter, over. But as a legal slash political matter, not over. Well, well hostilities is a pretty loose yeah. term. Well, and remember that each, in each of those cases, combat operations uh, led to occupations, and detention plays a role in an occupation, too. 
So there's a, there is this mushy question right at the end of the conflict. How do you define the end of the conflict that triggers the necessity of release of detainees? But I do think it's a very fair motion for the detainees' lawyers to file that when the president is repeatedly giving statements that says, hey, this war is over, you got to let my guy go. And I think it's going to force, I don't think that's a winning motion yet, but I do think it's an important point in this process to note. Yeah, and, it's, and this is this is novel, right? This is never this is the first time anyone has raised it on these grounds. Well, there have been prior motions arguing that the war is over, but they've been on much less. They haven't been on similar grounds. They've been on the idea that the U.S. was really at war with the Taliban government, and once the Taliban government fell, we weren't meaningfully at war uh, under the AUMF anymore. We were in some kind of different conflict, and that. That argument got no traction, in my judgment, rightly so, with the courts. Um, this one, I think, is a harder one. And I, as I say, I don't think it will prevail. But I do think it's a serious question, and it forces a serious consideration of what the end of the war in Afghanistan looks like and what it really means. And when will the response be, the ruling on the motion? Oh, I, I don't know the answer. Yeah, okay. I mean, the ruling will be whenever the judge rules, but I don't know when the government's response is due. Got it. Okay. Uh, my wordplay this week is homebrew. <laughs> homebrew is the technical term to describe uh, the apparent uh, in-house system of email servers and networking equipment that Bill and Hillary Clinton have in their home in Chappaqua, New York, to house all of her emails, including the emails that she sent when she was Secretary of State and relied exclusively on her personal email account for official business and did not use a state.gov or other government account. Uh, the New York Times broke this story earlier this week that she'd been using exclusively the online system, uh, or sorry, the private system, raising questions about whether or not she was being fully transparent, uh, whether she was trying to obscure communications that she had while she was Secretary of State, Clinton's aides very fiercely fought back against that and told us, actually, at the Daily Beast, that they've turned over nine out of ten of all the emails that she sent on this system when she was secretary, the other 10% being things like if she emailed, in their words, with Chelsea about flower arrangements for the wedding. They didn't turn that over. Um, to me, it raised... So inquiring minds want to know about oh, the flower so. arrangements. Oh, I think so. And this is a matter of public record. Yeah. I mean, marriages, right? Come right. On. They're public figures. Wedding pictures. Show Wedding us the emails. Show us the flower emails. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this, to me, this raised a question. I wrote about this this week. Um, that there could, there absolutely is a transparency question involved here, and there are so many unanswered questions about why she chose to do it this way. Um, obviously, this is a, a a family that has some experience with having their records poured through. So there may be some sensitivities to that. It should be noted that according to the State Department, John Kerry is the first Secretary of State to rely mostly on a government email account. Um, I've heard from former national security advisors in the past day or so that they didn't use email when they were in office. Um, so, But the bigger question to me is the security of this system. And a lot of security experts, when they heard this news that she had been running the network equipment out of her house, said this could potentially make it more vulnerable, certainly to physical damage. Were there any redundancies in place? Was this being backed up anywhere? And what about hackers and what about spies trying to get into the networks? And, you know, I suppose there's also a question, too, of whether she was complying with the spirit of 
records of uh, National Archives and Records Administration regulations, which said in 2009 that you have to, if you're going to use a personal account, you have to make some kind of provision to copy uh, these emails. But then a law was passed in 2012, sort of solidifying that. And when I asked NARA what's the difference between the regulation and the law, I didn't get a great clear answer. So a lot of unanswered questions about that. But you know, I don't know. To me, this just is, it raises a whole host of concerns about why is a senior cabinet, the senior cabinet official, running her email system out of her house. And just because it's unclassified, and the State Department said she had no classified information on it, doesn't mean that you couldn't learn a whole lot about the inner workings of government. I mean, Tamara, I'm sure when you were in government, there were plenty of things said in unclassified Absolutely. settings that you don't want our adversaries knowing. Well, look, I, I don't know that it's so much stuff you don't want your adversaries knowing, because I think, well, let me say two things. Number one is I think this period, um, and I remember being in the State Department when these new regulations were being implemented, they had to reconfigure our entire unclassed email system oh, really? to preserve what were called working records for NARA purposes. And so there was a time when our email process shifted and Outlook started automatically saving things for us for federal records purposes. And before that, I, I don't know how they did it, oh, to be perfectly honest. Okay. Yeah. But the other thing is that it is, you know, the government's approach to information security and classified information. And, you know, people say that the federal government overclassifies, but the fact is you're taught when you go through your security briefing that anything that's not on a classified system or dealt with in an explicitly secure manner as appropriate to classified material, you should assume that anyone can get it anywhere, anytime. Uh -huh. Um, you know, we have these designations like sensitive but unclassified or for official use only, but they, they don't have any practical meaning. And so you're taught to treat stuff on the unclassed system as though you're putting it on a wall. And the State <laughs> Department's e unclassified email did get hacked. Well, yes, apparently. So that's not so crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't sensitive things that, that are said on unclassed systems that you wouldn't want to be out in the public sphere. I'm sure that that happens. But, you know, I, I wonder if I were an information security person in the State Department, whether it would trouble me um, that, you know, these outside systems might be vulnerable to hacking because, after all, you assume that all your unclass right. is vulnerable to hacking. Isn't the real issue here that she only used an outside email and the way it was configured? I mean, you know, I email with government officials all the time, and most of them prefer that you use their private email accounts, mm -hmm. not their public email accounts, most of the time, because the moment you use their public email accounts, it's subject to FOIA. And, um, and... This is why the most important stuff in government happens either on the phone or in person. Right. Also, right. by the and, way. Right. And so, right. to me, it seems just entirely rational that somebody who is under as much scrutiny all the time as Hillary Clinton would want to minimize her footprint, her communications footprint in recoverable records subject to FOIA. What seems odd about this situation is that her way of doing that was to have, you know, a homebrew system mm -hmm. in which she kind of, uh, you know, 
has a server in her house um, and you know has no I, I would think way of securing this material um, and it all kind of looks like you know sort of a teenager you know kind of set up an email system for the secretary um, and you know that seems very strange but I don't I don't know that I fault her for not wanting Hillary.Clinton at state.gov to be her main point of contact. Yeah, that's the, no, that, that, I, I can understand it. And we should say that you know the law now would require her, if she were in government, as it requires Secretary Kerry, to preserve all of these records, regardless of whether she's using a personal or a system or not. And that's you know something that President Obama and his pledge for transparency. And who does that law one. cover? I believe well, it certainly covers senior officials. Now I don't know how far the chain it goes. I have to look at the mail, but the, the the law. But our understanding from talking to the state about this in the past couple of days is that you know, as of right now, like even if John Kerry is using an AOL account, anything that's official business, he has to make sure that it's it's forwarded to state for the record. But I think you know the more sort of tr troubling thing to me, or just the thing that just really kind of I guess bugs me, is the extent to which Hillary Clinton went to not just preserve in a sort of narrow sense, you know, the, 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 the email system, the, you know, that while she was in office and to protect that from, give those conversations private, but sort of the layers of secrecy around it. I mean, putting it in the house, it's registered according to the Associated Press to someone named Eric Hotham, H-O-T-E-H-A-M, that is the registry, who apparently does not exist. He is not in public records that I've been able to find. The only place in the, uh, that I've seen is he shows up in the yellow pages in Chappaqua, New York, at a P.O. box that is the same P.O. box as the tax return, listed on the tax return for the Clinton Foundation. So, you know, at a time when we're talking about fundraising by the Clinton Foundation and networks of private alliances and all these things, and now you're wondering, well, was Hillary, at least I am, was Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, sending messages? to try and engage in fundraising? Was she doing something in incorrect capacity as Secretary of State that could benefit a foundation? I mean, these are all questions that I suppose now we could find out from the emails. I, I do question whether those one out of 10 emails that include things like flower arrangements also include things about the foundation. But Wait, I, mean, I don't know, flower arrangements can use up a lot of emails. <laughs> it was a big wedding, wasn't it? <laughs> it was big, you know, look, it is, there is no way the Republicans can beat Hillary Clinton, but Hillary Clinton and the Clintons, the, you know, themselves have this incredible history of self-inflicted wounds, and you know the fact that we are sitting around talking about Algerian contributions to the Clinton foundations and the handling of her home-brewed email system, and we will inevitably have a fight about whether this is a vast right-wing conspiracy or whether it in involves corruption or whether, as I suspect, it is you know the, a group of the paranoid people around her implementing a system uh, in order to protect nothing in particular, which may have a few embarrassing emails which would otherwise have been in her State Department account. Um, you know, we'll go through a lot more rigmarole to find out the answer to that question than we should. And yeah. I don't think the Clintons have anybody to blame for that pattern of suspicion that are around them than themselves. I hope that your object lesson, Shane, is some homebrewed beer.
Oh, oh, I should have brought homebrew beer in. No, actually, it's it's even better. I'm not going to say that yet. And neither of you guys know what it is yet. So, um, but let's go to uh, object lessons uh, tomorrow. Do you want to start? Sure. Um, well, I I brought uh, a a little um, treat from my trip to Israel. Homebrew. No, not homebrew and not food. Although I gotta say that the food scene in Tel Aviv just gets better and better. Can I just pause for one second to say that the last time I was in Israel, which was the first time I was in Israel, I was on one of these junkets, and every damn restaurant that we went to, it was the same meal. And I began to just think, it's like, do all people in Israel do is sit down and eat like stewed peppers and then this like liver pate and like hummus and baba ganoush? Oh, heck no. Don't get me wrong, it was delicious, but I was like, my God, it was the same meal every time. So anyway, sorry. I'm glad sushi, to know I, I was... There's sushi, there's like avant-garde foam of various what? kinds. There is such a huge restaurant scene. I'm going with you to Israel next time. It, we're on. Okay. We're on. Anyway, what I, I brought, um, Saturday night before I left the country, I got together with an old friend, and uh, he took me to um, I, the Israeli equivalent of a uh, club concert uh, of this awesome brass band called Marsh Donderma. Uh, now, Marsh Donderma, the name itself is uh, is sort of eclectic and cross-cultural. Um, it's Marsh, which is sort of an Israelization of March, and Donderma, which is Turkish for ice cream. I'm not quite sure where that came mm -hmm. from. But this is a brass ensemble with an awesome drummer uh, that brings together funk, jazz, klezmer, traditional Middle Eastern music. It is rocking it's wow. awesome and so after this concert i brought i bought their album uh, uh in the airport on the way out called between times and uh and maybe in addition to to putting a picture of the album up on the site we could put a little sound clip on well we, we could actually maybe maybe we should use uh use some of their uh, a clip on the way out as our fade out music oh, that'd today. be good yeah, yeah exactly. that would be fun so yeah cross-cultural fun from tel aviv okay i'm a little skeptical of the klezmer being rocking you know that but i'm willing to try it yeah it sounds like it so, sounds like something that would be previewed on like npr on the weekends yeah like a tiny desk concert maybe yeah. you know imagine the World clarinet in klezmer replaced with a tenor sax and a trombone oh Fun. Okay, I'm willing to give that. That's a combination I'd never considered before. All right. Okay, uh, Ben. Well, as you all know, I am promoting a book these days. Relentlessly. The future What's of that? violence. You, have a you wrote book a book. I have a book with Gabby Bloom, and I was thinking today, as I was looking at Amazon.com wistfully, at the, <laughs> like you do, at the rating. When you have a book, you kind of uh, obsessively check the rating. And I was thinking about the incident of the Three Wolf Moon shirt, um, in ah. which, um, for those of you who don't know about the Three Wolf Moon shirt, this is a shirt that was for sale on Amazon. And people, um, apropos of nothing, on their own, started posting reviews of it, attributing magical properties to the book. I there love are, the internet. There are hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of these reviews, the first of which, which got it all going, um, and is uh, clicked by 38,000 people as finding this review useful, reads, this item has wolves on it, which makes it intrinsically sweet and worth five stars by itself. But once I tried it on, that's when the magic happened. 
after checking to ensure that the shirt would properly cover my girth, <laughs> I walked from my trailer to Walmart with the shirt on and was immediately approached by women. The women knew from the wolves on my shirt that I, like a wolf, am a mysterious loner who knows how to howl at the moon from time to time yes. if Whoa. you catch my drift. The women oh, that approached me wanted to know if I would be their boyfriend and or give them money for something they called meth. I told them no because they didn't have enough teeth and frankly a man with a wolf shirt shouldn't settle for the first thing that comes to him. It goes on. He shouldn't either. No, um, no he shouldn't. You're a proud wolf. And there are thousands and thousands of reviews um, and uh, of the wolf shirt. And so I would never encourage people to uh, write fake reviews of the future of violence attributing magical properties to it. That um, would be an abuse of the Amazon that review system. That would be an abuse of the Amazon review system, and I would never encourage people to do it. But I was thinking about what would happen today if spontaneously uh, people started doing that. That might be really good for book sales. Yeah. I yeah. think so. Just it might good happen. luck with that. It might happen. <laughs> it might mysteriously happen later today. Uh, here's uh, you know here's wistful dreaming, but not encouraging. Okay, it's time for my object lesson. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to show this to Tamara. And Tamara, I want you to just describe what this is. You haven't seen this yet. No, I haven't. Okay, uh, this is a business card. Mm -hmm. uh, shall I? Yep. Okay. Just say who it's from. It's from Donald Heathfield, the founder and CEO of Future Map which is based in Cambridge, Mass. Okay. And on the back, it has um, a little diagram. Future management systems, business intelligence, scenarios and strategy, collaboration and program management, dynamic scorecard. So many nouns. So many nouns, so many things. So Donald Heathfield is an alias for who this person really is, and his real name is Andre Bezrykov. And he is better known as one of the illegals who was around the Russian spies who were rounded up in 2010. Ooh. This is the business card wow. of one of the Russian spies who was given to someone who I cannot name, uh, trying to get this person to install the Future Map management system software on his business computers. Wow. So this is basically, this was someone trying to, this is, this is the card that Andre Bezrikov used when he was trying to target Americans to spy on them and on American businesses. That is awesome. And now, it's, it's, what we need to know is whether Hillary Clinton got one of these. Yeah, things. exactly. <laughs> we need to search the homebrew system for, for future the, map. Right. Donald Heathfield. I have to say it's a wonderful facsimile of kind of management consulting right? gobbledygook with it all totally, those nouns. I mean, it looks like, it, it absolutely, it looks like the most harmless, frankly, kind of ridiculous, absurd, uh, you know, card you can imagine. It looks like something off a PowerPoint slide. Um, it but, looks it, like a PowerPoint slide. Right, yeah. and it's um, very preserved and acid-free, you know, this um, archival yeah. acid-free kind of thing. But yeah, this was the card. You have, you, you have, you have spy uh, kitsch. Absolutely, this yeah, is spy, spy memorabilia. This you is yeah. spy, the spy memorabilia. Yeah. You know, you can you could sell that to the spy museum. Yes, absolutely. This could actually go in a museum. This, this is, is funding your retirement. Well, maybe I don't know. I mean, future <laughs> map might not be, but maybe this card will. <laughs> That's very excellent. <laughs> so yeah, I was actually uh, pretty pleased by that. All right, well, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. 
You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, at R-A-T-L Security. You can find our other great podcasts at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Uh, we have some great stuff up this week uh, from John Turk, our extreme nature explorer. If you have not seen that, one of the most harrowing stories you may ever hear about fear, rock climbing, the nature of anxiety, humans in danger. I highly, highly encourage you to check this out. Uh, our ed- podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music this week actually is performed by March Ice Cream. Yes, Mar- yeah. March Dundermark. And not the uh, enigmatic Snowden-like Sophia Yan. Who, well, uh, they, they, Sophia did the intro music. Sophia did the intro music, that's right. But actually, this week, it actually is performed by someone else. So thank you very much uh, to them and Tamara. Uh, on behalf of Tamara and Ben, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.